When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Chocolates are sweet, but they don't last long. Flowers are pretty, and then they're gone. So this Mother's Day, why not give your mum the gift that keeps on giving with Ancestry DNA? Ancestry DNA is on sale now for $99, a saving of $30. Ancestry DNA won't just tell your mum where her ancestors are from, it can also pinpoint the specific regions within those countries, connecting mum to the places where her story started. Ancestry DNA lets us look back across centuries to see where her family lived and where they moved. Combined with Ancestry's massive database of official records, this can open up fascinating migration stories. Who knows? Give your mum Ancestry DNA this Mother's Day and she might even discover living relatives. I know it's possible because it happened for me. Ancestry DNA is safe, easy to use and completely private. When your mum gets the kit, she just sends back a small saliva sample using the prepaid postal box provided. In a few weeks, she'll receive an email with the link to her results. From there, your mother has control of the data and how she uses it. There could be more to your mum's story. Piece it together with Ancestry DNA, now on sale. Terms apply. I'm Michael Adams and welcome to a special episode of Forgotten Australia to celebrate the publication of my new book, Hanging Ned Kelly, which is in stores this week. Hanging Ned Kelly is not another book about our most famous anti-hero. It's actually about the men and the system that saw Ned Kelly executed on the 11th of November 1880 in Melbourne Jail. Over the next 40 minutes or so, you're going to hear the author's note, which goes into more detail on the scope of the book, the prologue, which is set on that infamous hanging day, and chapter one, which looks at the English history of hanging and Australia's first execution just a month after white settlement in 1788. But before that, I'll just read this from page 369 of Hanging Ned Kelly. Acknowledgements. A big shout out to all Forgotten Australia listeners. Your support, kind reviews and generous comments helped make this book possible. And I really mean it. By listening, rating, reviewing, chatting with me via Facebook, you've given me the confidence to carry on doing what I do. I love doing it. I love sharing these stories. And I thank you for the opportunity. If you want to support the show via Apple Podcasts or via Patreon and get bonus episodes, the links are in your show notes. Okay, here's a taste of Hanging Ned Kelly. Hanging Ned Kelly by Michael Adams. Author's note. This isn't another book about Ned Kelly and his hunters, though you'll find these men in the pages that follow. Nor is it only about the 11th of November 1880, though that dark day is related in detail. It isn't even mostly about the forgotten man who put the noose around the neck of our most celebrated and condemned folk hero, though Elijah Upjohn's life is chronicled as never before. 
Hanging Ned Kelly is instead about a society that thought it a good idea to have a drunken chicken thief act as finisher of the law in Australia's most controversial criminal case. Just as Ned Kelly was shaped by many influences, so Elijah Upjohn was moulded by his family, by his strivings and failings, and by the society he suffered and served. And just as the bushranger followed in the footsteps of others in the outlaw profession, in the colonies and in England, so the hangman stood on the shoulders of those who'd come before, in Melbourne, and following the fatal rope to its sources in Sydney and across the seas in London. These men, all referred to by the nickname Jack Ketch, were often more hated than the fiends on the ends of their whips and nooses. Much of this vitriol arose from the nature of their work. More came from the bungling that regularly saw their victims die slowly on the gallows. Yet more was piled on because they were so often drunk and disorderly on the streets. What made their lot still worse was the unease the public felt when they thought the condemned were innocent or, at least, unfairly convicted. But these executioners were all duly appointed functionaries of the law, carrying out the dread sentence on behalf of God, Queen and Colony. They were killing to keep society safe. Yet the hangmen were hated, and people loved hating them. Hangmen absorbed the anger and animosity that might otherwise have been directed at their superiors. Judges who passed death sentences, governors, premiers and their cabinets who confirmed these punishments, and sheriffs who hired hangmen, paid them their blood money, and for decades declined to fire them for their outrages. Jack Ketch, in all his incarnations, did the dirty work so that his betters, could keep their hands clean. Newspapers poured fuel on the fire by demonising and mocking the executioners until they were hunted through the streets by violent crowds of larrikins. As one scribe asked, who shall hang the hangman? Yet these same mobs would fight for the chance to see him carry out his work. People who hated the hangman also made heroes of murderous bushrangers, snapped up copies of Australia's first gory tabloid newspaper, lapped up the absurd pronouncements about criminals made by phrenologists and turned a waxwork chamber of horrors into Melbourne's biggest tourist attraction. Hanging Ned Kelly isn't an overview of these contradictions. This is a close-up look at the characters who lived in the shadows of the gallows and at many of the people who died in the noose. Elijah Upjohn, Michael Gately, William Bamford, John Castio, Claude Ferry, Philemon Sohir, Maximilian Kreitmeier, Marcus Clark, Alfred Deacon, Vagabond, the Mangatupu murderer, Tom the Devil, Captain Melville, the Hanging Doctor, and the tragic convict Weechurch were just some of the inhabitants of this wild world. They were people Ned Kelly would have known about, from his family and friends, from his mentor Harry Power, from newspaper reports, from a pamphlet stolen from a murdered policeman, from jailers and fellow jailbirds, before he finally stood eye to eye with his own hangman. Although he's unlikely to have known all the tales in this book, Ned Kelly would have been familiar with many, and from them with everything that going to the hangman entailed. Scenes we associate with his last days and his legacy had a century's worth of Australian antecedents that aren't usually part of the story. Yet, strand by strand, they threaded the rope that went around his neck. That same noose strangled his executioner just as surely, though far more slowly, as it had his predecessors. 
Unlike Ned Kelly and his fellow bushrangers who were lionised for dying game on the gallows, Elijah Upjohn and others who occupied his loathsome office were used as sin eaters by a society trying to convince itself it was Christian and civilised. Ned Kelly lived a short life. Theirs were longer and they spent them in hell. Note on hanging. It was only in the last third of the 1800s that the science of hanging dictated that the knot be placed at the angle of the jaw below the left ear and that rope length be calculated based on weight. This long drop was meant to be sufficient to break the neck with a hangman's fracture of the second and third cervical vertebra, but not so great as to decapitate. In that fatal moment, the hempen noose snapping tight was also meant to close off the blood and oxygen supply to the brain. The intended humane result was immediate unconsciousness and an instant and painless death. Even following these measures, this ideal wasn't always or even usually attained, due to everything from terrified victims having strong necks and shifting the knot in their struggles, to bungling hangmen's incorrect calculations and ignorant officials using the wrong sort of rope. Yet Hanging Ned Kelly is primarily concerned with a period of white colonisation in Australia before this imperfect process was formalised. When drops were short, knots were as likely to be placed under chins and at the backs of necks, and deaths were often apparently neither instant nor painless. While the frequent use of the gallows ought to have provided a trial and error guide to getting it right, execution by torture prevailed for more than a century continuing even after the science had been established and communicated. A brief discussion of modern studies of how people die by hanging can be found in chapter 27. Note on sources. Hanging Ned Kelly is largely based on information found in historical newspaper and magazine reports accessed via the National Library of Australia's Marvellous Trove database. Then, as now, journalists had differing perceptions, biases, talents and levels of commitment to tell it straight or sensationalise. They wrote for readerships who held certain expectations and for editors with their own moral, social and political agendas. Finding the truth is elusive. It's rare even to find two reports of an execution that agree on every detail. Mindful of this, I've often related varying accounts as they were printed. These help us understand how elements of Ned Kelly's hanging would become contested. But they also help to explain why the brutality of hangings was allowed to continue for so long. If the Argus said a culprit died instantly and the Herald claimed that he struggled for five minutes, then authorities had what we'd now call plausible deniability and the ability to shrug off criticism as fake news. This was pervasive. Much as The Hangman in Trouble became the default headline for any given executioner's latest drunken outrage, Death Was Instantaneous was the go-to for describing gallows victims who often died much harder than that. In addition to Australian newspapers, I've also relied on contemporary reports from UK newspapers accessed via the British Newspaper Archive, UK and Colonial Australian Convict, Criminal, Penal, Sheriff and Coronial Records held online and on-site at the Public Records Office of Victoria, the New South Wales State Archives and Libraries Tasmania, and Colonial Journals kept by Convict Ship Surgeons, Aboriginal Protectors, Colonial Settlers and particularly Melbourne Jail's Governor John Buckley Castio. 
where I have consulted secondary material, I've endeavoured to confirm any claims by verifying the relevant primary sources. Note on contents. Hanging Ned Kelly contains frequent references to and descriptions of murder, crime, sexual assault, child abuse, bestiality, violence, execution, torture, anatomization, desecration of human remains, suicide, mental illness and addiction. There are also descriptions of First Nations people who have died, the terrible manner of their oppression and murders, and the desecration of their remains of the oppression, criminalization, torture and execution of homosexual men and the blithe legal attitudes to violence against women that let perpetrators walk free to reoffend. Prologue 11th November 1880 It's just before 10 in the morning on Thursday the 11th of November 1880 and in one of two cells on the first floor of Melbourne Jail's new wing, the convicted man awaits his appointment with the gallows. Just outside his door is a balcony that spans the narrow northern corridor. Into the wooden platform is built a drop, whose trapdoors are kept closed by a bolt attached to a lever in a box like a railway switch. Above, spanning the corridor, is a huge wooden beam. Coiled around it is an ugly rope as thick as a man's thumb. The hanging length reaches the platform with eight feet to spare and ends in a running slip noose. In a few minutes, the condemned man's arms will be pinioned, strapped, behind his back at the elbows. He'll be led to the drop as the priests pray for his soul. The noose will be fitted with the knot behind his left ear. The white cap on his head will be lowered to cover his face. The lever will be pulled to open the trap door and he'll be launched into eternity. The convicted man might be given to wonder, was it always going to come to this? Was he fated by a criminal father transported to Tasmania? Fated by a system that brutalised him as a boy? Fated by the police who treated him like filth? Fated by the reckless slaughter he committed that put him in this jail? Can he really do this? What comes after? But what's done is done. Now this has to be done. Such is life. Such is fame. Such is death. Outside the jail's bluestone walls, the streets are crowded with thousands of men, women and children. They don't want today's execution to go ahead, especially those young ruffians of the Larrikin fraternity. Inside, below the platform, a few dozen witnesses are gathered. They gaze up at the gallows and at the drop through which the condemned man will plummet. Along with these police, warders and doctors, there are reporters with their notebooks, ready to capture every detail of how a man behaves in extremis. The jail's governor, the sheriff, his deputy and the surgeon climb the stairs to the first floor. When the city's post office clock strikes 10, the ritual's final legal formalities begin as the sheriff hands the governor a warrant and demands the body of the doomed prisoner. This is it. Time for the convicted man to go to work on the condemned man in the cell on the other side of the balcony. All eyes are on the convicted man as he steps onto the stage. Leather strap in hand, he pads across the balcony, glaring down at the witnesses who recoil at his repulsive visage. He's old, huge and hulking, and he looks every bit the brutal executioner, right down to the pus-filled bump on his big nose. The convicted man, this drunken shoveler of shit, this ridiculous quack doctor, this miserable chicken thief, now must pinion his first condemned man. 
Melbourne's new hangman, Elijah Upjohn, stands face to face with his first victim, the bushranger, Ned Kelly. Chapter 1. Strung Up, Down Under When the First Fleeters began the colonisation of First Nations land in 1788, they brought with them more than seeds and livestock, muskets and smallpox. They imported the law and law of hangmen and hangings. How culprits were strung up, who performed the executions, the way these men were selected and supervised, what became of the dead bodies, and the language used to describe the whole process, all of it had evolved over centuries. Every man and woman who stepped from the First Fleet, free and convict, of high and low class, educated and unschooled, was steeped in the culture of capital punishment. The primacy of hanging in British society was neatly expressed in the satirical story of a shipwreck survivor who feared he'd washed up on an island of heathen savages, only to fall to his knees and give thanks when he saw a gallows because he knew he was in a civilised land. The British had embraced this method of execution more than the people of any other nation. Where the Union Jack and the Christian Cross went, the scaffold and the noose were sure to follow. The long rope from Ned Kelly's neck stretched back across the oceans and centuries to 1196 and the first recorded English hanging at Tyburn, London's chief place of execution, where malefactors were strung from tree branches. This first recorded victim was the prototypical Hirsute self-proclaimed saviour of the poor, who had been wounded during a siege and then captured. William Fitzosbert, a.k.a. Longbeard, had led an uprising against King Richard I, a.k.a. Lionheart, and for this treason was sentenced to death. After Longbeard was hanged in chains, his followers proclaimed him a martyr and made off with the gibbet, the chains, and even blood they scraped from the road, regarding these as relics with miraculous powers. 700 years later, similar scenes were to play out in places on the other side of the world called Glenrowan, and Melbourne. Some 50,000 people were put to death at Tyburn over its centuries of operation. Terrified victims were turned off a ladder or cart, some pissing and shitting as they struggled and strangled for up to 45 minutes. Others were quartered while alive. Some were posthumously beheaded and burned. Corpses were left to rot on ropes. Murderers not hanged in chains were anatomized, that is, dissected after death to ensure they were dead and as an additional posthumous punishment. What was left of killers was buried in unconsecrated ground, their bodily defilement meaning they couldn't be resurrected on judgment day, considered a fate worse than death. Although the English were Christians who followed a saviour who turned the other cheek before himself being executed on a Roman gallows, they nevertheless used religion to justify putting men and women to death. One of the Ten Commandments may have been, Thou shalt not kill, but Genesis 9.6 also conveniently instructed, Whoever sheds human blood, by humans shall their blood be shed. Yet many who died in agony at Tyburn were expiating far lesser sins than murder. Tyburn took on an industrial dimension with the erection of a permanent gallows in 1571. The Tyburn tree comprised three posts supporting three beams that formed a triangle, so up to 24 people could be hanged at once. For gentlefolk though, being strangled amid the rabble was no way to go. 
and they were able to pay or plead for a less painful exit via the headsman and his axe. London's first known public executioner was Cratwell, who, from 1534 to 1538, was a cunning butcher in quartering of men. The first infamous hangman-cum-headsman was Thomas Derrick. When he was convicted of rape, the Earl of Essex gave him a stark choice, hang or be hanged. Derrick saved his own neck by doing violence to 3,000 other necks during his career. Essex would come to regret his choice, at least for a bloody minute, when, in 1601, he was sent to the block and it took Derrick three chops to separate his head from his body. Jack Ketch was London's most notorious executioner. He held the role from 1663, when the first newspapers were being published, and he became infamous for who he killed and how. In 1678, Protestant priest Titus Oates discovered a plot by papists to assassinate Charles II. At least 22 of the Catholic conspirators were hanged for treason. A broadside titled The Plotter's Ballad, being Jack Ketch's incomparable receipt for the cure of traitorous recusants and wholesome physic for a popish contagion, celebrated one of these executions and the man who performed it. This merry account began with the victim arriving at the gallows and confessing, I am sick of a traitorous disease. Jack Ketch, axe in one hand and rope in the other, replies, Here's your cure, sir. Jack Ketch was paid three guineas per victim. Traditional perks included the used rope and the condemned's clothing, both of which could be sold to morbid or superstitious folk. Jack made more money yet, offering painless exits. But customer service wasn't guaranteed, as Lord William Russell discovered when he went to the block in 1683 and Jack's first axe blow missed his neck and hacked open his shoulder. Lord Russell was heard to roar, Dog, did I give you ten guineas to use me so inhumanly? He should have kept his coins. Jack hit him twice more and then finished the job by sawing off his head with a knife. Spectators were appalled. Rumour had it the executioner was drunk or had deliberately inflicted suffering. Jack, or someone claiming to be him, published the Apology of John Ketch, Esquire, to protest. It is not fit that so public a person as the executioner of justice should be under the scandal of untrue reports and be unjustly exposed to popular clamour. Jack admitted he had been a little distracted, but denied being a drunken bungling sadist. Instead, he blamed Lord Russell for refusing to wear a hood or restrain his hands. It didn't do for a man to see what was coming and be able to move. Jack Ketch was also public flagellator, and his most famous corporal punishment illustrated the irreversible risk posed by its capital cousin. Turned out, Titus Oates had fabricated the Popish plot. For perjuries that had seen so many hang, he was whipped through the London streets on successive days by the hangman. A valuable service, no doubt, but after the hacking of Lord Russell, it might have been prudent to give Jack the sack as executioner. Yet, he kept his job. In 1685, the Duke of Monmouth faced the block. He paid Jack six guineas, saying, Pray, do your business well. Don't serve me as you did my Lord Russell. Jack did him even worse. He brought the axe down three times and still the Duke was far from dead. The executioner exclaimed, God damn me, I can do no more. My heart fails me. 
the sheriff ordered him to keep going, and Jack rained down another five blows. Still, the duke's head was attached. As it was up to the sheriff, as enforcer of the English law, to see that the death warrants were carried out, this one used a knife to finish the job. Spectators were so angry that Jack had to flee for his life. For all of that, he still wasn't fired. When Jack was imprisoned in January 1686, it was for affronting a sheriff. His assistant, Pasca Rose, took over as public executioner. Pasca lasted four months before he was hanged for robbery by Jack in a triumphant but short-lived comeback performance because he died in November that year. Jack Ketch was dead. Long live Jack Ketch. Jack the man had gone to the grave, but Jack the myth lived on as a figure of fear and of fun. He was the supporting villain in the Punch and Judy puppet shows popular in England from the 1660s. Poet laureate John Dryden satirically celebrated this excellent physician who delivered a fine, dry kind of death. Such was his infamy that, for hundreds of years, Jack Ketch, with all the implications of drunken sadism, ghastly bungling and gallows humour, became the universal nickname for hangmen in England and her colonies. From 1747, hanging became England's official method of execution. Tyburn hangings were held eight times a year and were one of London's most popular mass entertainments. The condemned's three-mile cart journey from Newgate Prison to the Tyburn Tree could take three hours through streets jammed with people eager to gaze on the prisoner, have a chat and share a joke, or raise a toast at inns where publicans offered free grog to the doomed men and women. Yet, it could also be furious rather than festive. Felons convicted of heinous crimes got no last drinks on the house. Their ride was a torture, with the public jeering and pelting them with rocks, garbage, or the human and animal shit then so abundant in the streets. At Tyburn, watched by thousands, the condemned stood on the cart as the noose was affixed to the tree. He or she had a chance to make a last speech that might even resemble what had already been printed in the souvenir programs being sold in the crowd. When the victim was turned off the cart, those who'd paid to be closest got their money's worth as they savoured the death croaks. William Hogarth's The Idle Prentice executed at Tyburn depicted a fictional Tyburn hanging based on this reality. In his picture, a chaotic crowd surges around the cart, taking the prisoner to his doom, as he sits wearing his white cap against his coffin with the preacher exhorting him to repent. Spectators line a wall and many more pack a huge grandstand. A pie man calls his produce. A pickpocket works his trade. A mother with babe in arms spruiks a copy of the speech to come. In the background, the Tyburn tree awaits, as does the current Jack Ketch, draped across one of its branches, calmly puffing on his pipe. Euphemisms were used to soften hanging, with the poetic launched into eternity the clear favourite but the reality of death in the noose was understood to some degree. In 1774, anatomy professor Dr Alexander Munro explained to gallows enthusiast James Boswell that the man who is hanged suffers a great deal, that he is not at once stupefied by the shock. A man is suffocated by hanging in a rope just as by having his respiration stopped by having a pillow pressed on the face. For some time after a man is thrown over, he is sensible and conscious he is hanging. Hanging was death by torture. 
but the end could come quicker if the condemned paid the hangman to pull down on his legs. Forger Dr. William Dodd was afforded this luxury in 1777, but his case was famous for far more than that. The execution of this popular preacher was carried out despite 23,000 people signing a petition. Dr. Samuel Johnson led the campaign and famously ghostwrote Dodd's final sermon in Newgate Prison. When the brilliance of these words led to authorship being questioned, Johnson protected their secret with his off-quoted drollery. Depend upon it, sir. When a man knows he is to be hanged in a fortnight, it concentrates his mind wonderfully. Dr. Dodd's procession and crowd was one of the biggest in Tyburn's history. One newspaper said 40,000 people turned out and a single stand took a box office of £100. Hanging was a money spinner, but it couldn't compete with London's real estate market. Tyburn became too valuable to be devoted to scragging and was last used in November 1783. This victim died hard, the noose of the halter having slipped to the back part of the neck. It was longer than usual before he was dead. From then on, London's main place for executions was outside Newgate Prison, where a new gallows with a drop had been built. Yet the fall and the ropes remained so short that many victims still strangled. The science of hanging, not placement, length of rope and drop based on weight, was still a century away. The move to Newgate ended the tradition of the procession, the fury of innovation angering Dr. Johnson. No, sir, it is not an improvement. They object that the old method drew together a number of spectators. Sir, executions are intended to draw spectators. If they do not draw spectators, they don't answer their purpose. The old method was most satisfactory to all parties. The public was gratified by a procession. The criminal was supported by it. Why is all this to be swept away? Dr. Johnson needn't have been ropeable. Newgate executions still attracted huge crowds and hanging became more embedded in the culture as villains were castigated and celebrated in broadsides, chapbooks and bawdy ballads. The Newgate Calendar, a massive, regularly updated compendium of lives ended in the noose, was one of the most popular books in print. One edition had a frontispiece showing a mother giving the tome to her young son so he wouldn't end up like the man hanging on the gibbet outside their window. But by the 1770s, many who'd neglected their Newgate calendar lessons actually owed their lives to England's over-enthusiasm for capital punishment. In 1688, there had been 50 crimes punishable by death, but the number of capital crimes had expanded dramatically under what was later dubbed the Bloody Code. By 1815, there would be 200. In addition to treason, murder, arson, theft and forgery, a felon could theoretically have a date with Jack Ketch for stealing from a rabbit warren, being out at night with a blackened face, impersonating a pensioner and keeping company with gypsies for a month. Yet this proliferation of capital punishments made juries less likely to convict and judges more likely to commute sentences to transportation to the American colonies. But the 1775 Revolutionary War had paused the exportation of evildoers, and the increasing numbers of unhanged convicts were incarcerated in floating prison hulks. In 1783, with the war lost, England at first didn't take no for an answer, and thrice tried stealth transportation of convicts to America. 
The first two voyages ended in mutiny. The third was turned back by the United States and its human cargo dumped in Honduras. A new solution was needed. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Thomas Barrett was one of 775 or so convicts on the first fleet when it sailed on the 13th of May, 1787. Five years earlier, aged about 23, he'd stolen a watch from a house in London. His death sentence was commuted to life transportation, and in April 1784, Barrett had been aboard the Mercury, the second attempt at shipping convicts to America as indentured servants. During the mutiny, he saved the captain from having his ears cut off. When Barrett and the other rebels were caught, the judge made special mention of this mercy in commuting his second death sentence to life. After three years on a hulk, Barrett was bound for Botany Bay on the Charlotte and in trouble when the ship was anchored off Rio. He and two accomplices were caught forging coins to buy produce from visiting Portuguese traders. Ship surgeon John White was amazed by the intricacy of the work. Seeking to put Barrett's talents to good use, when Charlotte reached Botany Bay on the 20th of January, the doctor commissioned him to turn a flattened silver pan into an engraved medal. The depiction of this historical event, the Charlotte riding a swell beneath the night sky, was the first piece of colonial art produced in Australia. Six days later, on the 26th of January 1788, Captain Arthur Phillip founded European settlement at Port Jackson. The next day, male convicts began coming ashore, a process whose conclusion coincided with the first divine service being held on the 3rd of February. The Union Jack and the Christian Cross had been raised. A gallows couldn't be far off. Philip warned as much on the 7th of February when, the morning after the women were landed and white civilization proper got underway with a thunderstruck orgy, everyone was gathered so the documents establishing the colony could be read. The newly minted governor laid down the law of the new land by using a striking example. Back home, chickens were plentiful, and stealing one wouldn't get you necked. But in this harsh new land, fowls were vital to survival. Anyone stealing a bird, or anything, would be hanged. This was at odds with Philip's previous view on capital punishment. He had been against the death penalty, except in cases of murder and sodomy, and he was no fan of hanging. His proposed solution for Botany Bay? It had been, confine the killer or the buggerer, quote, till an opportunity offered of delivering him as a prisoner to the natives of New Zealand, and let them eat him. In view of this, Governor Philip may have found hanging men for petty crimes difficult to deal with. Certainly, he blinked when Australia's first criminal court was convened four days later. One convict was given 150 lashes for striking a marine. A second was sentenced to 50 lashes for thieving firewood, though this was remitted. A third man who'd stolen bread was chained for a week on a harbour island called Matawai. 
Known and cherished by the Eora people, this bush-covered pyramid rose 75 feet above the water and had been used for thousands of years for fishing and leisure. Now, it was the first place the white invaders used for the internal exile of their re-offenders, the prison within the prison, and it was lent the nautical term Pinchgut, which in time would be conflated with how banished convicts felt as they survived on half-rations. Floggings and exile were harsh but preferable to hanging. Yet Philip's mercy went unrewarded. On the 18th of February, three convicts were tried for stealing and each was sentenced to 150 lashes. Other offenders tested the governor's patience and the colony seemed on the precipice of anarchy. On the 27th of February, Australia's first death sentences were handed down. Thomas Barrett, Henry Lovell and Joseph Hall were to be hanged at 6 o'clock that evening for stealing bread, pork and peas from the public store. Australia's first gallows was like early Tyburn, a rope from a fatal tree. Philip ordered all convicts mustered and the condemned trio was brought forth. Lovell and Hall were respited and would live to see another day, if only that, because they were ordered to be hanged at this same place and time tomorrow. No such mercy was extended to Thomas Barrett, petty thief, mercury mutineer, saviour of ears, gifted forger and Australia's first colonial artist. First Fleeters recorded accounts of this first hanging that varied as much as they overlapped. Surgeon Arthur Bowes Smythe, for instance, dated the hanging to the 26th of February. He labelled Barrett a most vile character, but recorded that he confessed on the gallows. So did Surgeon White, who said the doomed man admitted to living a wicked life, that he'd been led astray by evil company, and that he deserved what he was about to get. This was all important and good. It meant this first capital punishment, though it was to be primitive, was ticking the right boxes. Crime, trial, sentence, confession, exhortation to the crowd. All that was missing was the hangman. While the First Fleet had left England equipped with everything needed for a new society, no one had been designated the public executioner. Maybe they really thought they'd export villains to New Zealand. So a convict was hastily persuaded to play hangman. But then he got cold feet. Provost Marshal Henry Brewer threatened him severely. Major Robert Ross said the Marines would shoot him. Only then, according to Smythe, could he be prevailed upon to execute his office. But that wasn't what Surgeon George Butcher Worgan recorded. Quote, the man who had agreed to execute this office failed so much in his duty either from timidity or feeling in the execution of Barrett that our sheriff was under the disagreeable necessity of mounting the ladder himself in order to fix the halter. Marine Ralph Clark also noted Brewer as performing the next part of the process, putting a handkerchief over Barrett's head, which was the moment, quote, he turned as white as a sheet, soon after the ladder was pulled from under him and he launched into the other world without a groan. Surgeon White used the term launched into eternity. If Barrett didn't groan, it was likely because the rope was so tight around his vocal cords, not because he died quickly and painlessly. He was, as was customary, left to hang for an hour. He was then cut down and buried in an unmarked grave. It was hoped that the convicts had learned a valuable lesson. But Captain of Marines Watkin Tench who dated the hanging to the 28th of February, didn't see any redemptive quality to the man's death, describing Barrett as a, quote, 
old and desperate offender who died with that hardy spirit which too often is found in the worst and most abandoned class of men. The shorthand for this, already in use in England, was he died game. These conflicting journal entries, with their euphemistic launching imagery, downplaying of suffering, and accounts of penitence and defiance through to Sheriff Hangman Tension, the obstinate belief in the death penalty as deterrent, and the unholy disposal of the dead, anticipated much that would be found in future newspapers as Australian colonies carved out their own history of capital punishment. Jack Ketch entered Australian letters that day. In his journal, Worgen mused of the convict's refusal, writing, quote, So here was an opportunity of establishing a Jack Ketch who should in all future executions either hang or be hanged. No doubt the next 24 hours sharpened the minds of Lovell and Hall wonderfully. Then they were taken in the rain to the gallows and pardoned on the condition that they be banished to the Harbour Island. This commutation of sentence raised another question that would endure. It wasn't found in journals, but likely crossed the mind of many. Why were some spared for the same crime for which others paid with their lives? Did the mercy shown to Lovell and Hall essentially mean Barrett's death had been legal murder? Hopes that Barrett's hanging would be a deterrent were quickly dashed. On the 29th of February, four more condemned men were brought to the tree. Three were shown mercy. That left flower thief James Freeman, whose surname was about to take on a more bitter irony. Born in Herefordshire around 1768, Freeman as a youth fell in with a gang of thieves. While his older accomplices were hanged, his death sentence was commuted to transportation for seven years. Now, with the noose around his neck, Governor Philip offered him the same devil's bargain that Essex had extended to Derrick two centuries earlier. Freeman could hang or be the colony's hangman for the rest of his term. Surgeon John White noted that, quote, after some little pause, he reluctantly accepted. Australia had its first Jack Ketch. Freeman executed his first man in May and would see off another three convicts that year. This deterrent didn't stop six Marines from stealing from the public stores and being hanged in 1789. Later that year, Freeman faced a task that would be the death of one of his successors. He had to hang a woman. When Anne Davis, alias Judith Jones, was sentenced to the fatal tree for stealing clothes, she startled the court with a reason she should not swing. David Collins recorded, quote, On receiving sentence to die, she pleaded being quick with child. Scragging a woman was one thing. Hanging a pregnant woman was beyond the pale. A jury of the discreetest mothers from the convict ranks was impaneled to decide the state of her womb. Examination complete, the forewoman, as Tench recorded, a grave personage between 60 and 70 years old, delivered the verdict. Gentlemen, she is as much with child as I am. Before Anne Davis hanged, she confessed to her crimes, and in keeping with another of Tyburn's traditions, she went to the gallows drunk. As sailor Jacob Nagel recorded in his journal, quote, she was hung, led to the gallows by two women so much intoxicated in liquor that she could not stand without holding her up. It was dreadful to see her going out of the world in such a senseless, shocking manner. Collins put it more coldly. She died generally reviled and unpitied by the people of her own description. 
Maybe that was so, but hanging her seemed to take its toll on James Freeman, who shortly afterwards was caught inebriated and insolent out of his hut after curfew. He was sentenced to 100 lashes and his grog ration was suspended. Australia had its first drunken and disorderly Jack Ketch. But hangmen were hard to find and Freeman kept his job, as would his successors, be they drunk, disorderly or far, far worse. Thanks for listening. Hanging Ned Kelly will be available from the 27th of September and I'd love to hear what you think of it. 